Welcome, everyone. So I'm continuing a series of talks on <coughs> mindfulness. Surprise, surprise. But uh, we've switched gears a little since the summer, since August. And I'm beginning a series of talks on what in Buddhism is called the se seven factors of awakening. And as you know, the Buddha, <coughs> primarily because it was an oral tradition, was very systematic in how he organized the different uh, qualities of the mind and, and also the, the various skillful means for people to better understand their minds. So he systematized it in a way that would make it easier for people to use the teachings that he gave and to remember the teachings. And so one of those particular systems is what are the qualities of mind that are present when insight arises, <clears throat> when a human being understands or sees and understands things that they haven't yet seen or understood. So when we have those kind of aha moments in terms of our own being or the nature of our own mind and heart, when we have those aha moments, if we could you know, have a sense of what was present, what qualities were present in the mind right then, that would be useful because then it would be uh, easier for us to know what what particular qualities to strengthen and what qualities maybe aren't so important. So the Buddha shared what he had come to know from watching his own mind and he has this list of seven things. Mindfulness is the central one because it's balancing between the three energizing and the three tranquilizing factors. So one balancing factor, mindfulness, which I'll be talking about tonight. I talked about last week, last couple of weeks actually. And then over the course of the next several months, I'll talk about the three energizing factors, which is which are investigation, energy or effort, and rapture or joy or joy. And then the three tranquilizing factors we'll cover a little bit later in the fall, which are tranquility concentration or one-pointedness and equanimity balance so you, we need all seven of these but these two sets this the tranquilizing set and the energizing set need to be in balance with each other and of course mindfulness is so useful because it tells us what's out of balance it's just by being mindful we'll see what's in the mind what qualities are present and what are strong, what are weak, what need to be strengthened. So in that context, I've been talking about mindfulness the last few weeks. And uh, I thought I'd start by just talking about well, what is it, what is the purpose of mindfulness? There's sort of more specific technical definition of mindfulness. Sometimes we refer Casually, we refer to the whole Buddhist path, the path that the Buddha taught, this path of awakening, as mindfulness. And that's okay to use it as a sort of generic kind of covering the whole path, a generic term. But there's also a very technical definition of mindfulness, which sometimes means a not forgetting. It's like not forgetting what's relevant. And so what's relevant? And in Buddhism, What's relevant is the Dhamma, the way it is. And this is what we keep missing. Because we're forgetful, because we're not paying attention, we tend to get swept away by our thoughts about things, our interpretation, our kind of ceaseless internal commentary. We're basically telling ourselves a story about our life, and, it's, and it exists as a substitution for actually the actual experience, present moment experience of our life. So in a way, we're living the story of our life, not our life. Joko Beck has this wonderful image. She's a well-known Zen teacher in San Diego, one of the real elders in Western Buddhism. She's kind of just, I think, a rambler in some suburb of San Diego where they've had a Zen center now for many decades. And uh, she's quite well known. But she has this wonderful image where she talks about how we have a very 
fine house. And because of our bad habits, we go and build a house right on top of that house. <laughs> and so then our very fine house becomes dank and dark and lifeless because we've gone ahead and built another house right on top of it. And this second house, the superstructure, is our kind of habit of interpreting our life to ourselves or commenting ceaselessly about our life to ourselves. And in doing that, we forget. We live a life of forgetfulness. We're forgetting the here and now. I mean, it doesn't mean there isn't some connection. We touch the here and now in moments through the day, but then very quickly we start to interpret and think about that experience instead of having another moment of just feeling the air touching the skin or feeling the rawness of some emotion. We very quickly have an interpretation of why I'm sad, why I'm feeling melancholy, why I'm happy, why there's excitement. And not with the excitement itself or the sadness itself. So the purpose of mindfulness is a not forgetting of Dhamma. And here's a beautiful passage. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the real, I guess we could say, you know, all teachers for sure, and, and a lot of the practitioners in Western Buddhism have really benefited from this man, uh, grew up in Brooklyn, got interested in Buddhism at a young age, went to Sri Lanka and ordained as a monk, and has been a monk for many decades now, and has done a lot of the translation and, and teaching. So he's sort of a scholar, practitioner, Buddhist monk. And uh, this is a great book you can download on the internet. It's just by Bhikkhu Bodhi is his name. And Bhikkhu just means Buddhist monk. And Bodhi is his name, B-O-D-H-I. And it's just the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the end of suffering. So you can either order it, you know, go to Amazon or someplace like that and order it. Or you can just download it for free right off of the internet if you just Google the Noble Eightfold Path in Bhikkhu Bodhi, or find it. And on Chapter 7, he's going through uh, part of the Eightfold Path, his right mindfulness, and this is what he has to say. <clears throat> the Buddha says that the Dhamma, the ultimate truth of things, is directly visible, timeless, calling out to be approached and seen. And this is so important because we feel like the practice is so difficult, but it's useful to remember that the Dhamma, what we're trying to wake up to, is actually really here and available. It's not like hiding somewhere. You know, the image of the fish swimming in the water. We're swimming in Dhamma. We're swimming in the truth of the way it is. But because of our habit of interpreting life to ourselves, thinking about life, we keep missing it. But we miss it because of our habits, not because what we need to wake up to is somehow far away or protected by some magical, you know, guard or some, you know, secret that we have to, some secret riddle that we have to figure out. It's really not that way. All we have to figure out is what needs to be let go of. That we're engaged in some activity that has become so second nature to us that we don't even realize we're doing it. And see, that's what we have to see and let go of in order to open. So this, what, the, what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is saying here is this, uh, these phrases that the Buddha gave, so they're ancient. He's just kind of paraphrasing, not even paraphrasing, it's really a pretty direct translation of some of the things the Buddha said, that the Dhamma, the way it is, so the truth of our experience in any moment, so it doesn't, doesn't depend on a particular experience. You don't have to be at a Buddhist meditation center to wake up to the Dhamma. You don't have to be practicing meditation. You can be doing anything and wake up to the Dhamma the way it is. So it's, a, it's not so much about the conditions, but it's about something that is uh, true regardless of the particular conditions in the moment that we wake up to. And this is directly visible, timeless, calling out to be approached and seen. He further, he says further that it is always available to us 
and the place where it is to be realized is within oneself. The ultimate truth, the Dhamma, is not something mysterious and remote, but the truth of our own experience. It can be reached only by understanding our experience, by penetrating it right through to its foundation. This truth, in order to become a liberating truth, has to be known directly. It is not enough merely to accept it on faith, to believe it on the authority of books or a teacher, or to think it out through deductions and inferences. It has to be known by insight, grasped and absorbed by a kind of knowing, which is also an immediate seeing. And this is, this is encouraging because this is something we can all do. We've got a life, we all have a life, which means there's an experience being had right now. And so this experience is, in a sense, it's just waiting to be known, waiting to be understood or, as he says, penetrated. Penetration, you know, that's a tricky phrase when you say to penetrate something because it, it can sound very willful. But the penetration that Bhikkhu Bodhi is talking about is a, a kind of opening or looking or seeing where the mind is not getting distracted by its usual impulses to think about what's going on or to interpret or analyze what's going on. That's the key. So the penetration is really a non-distraction, not getting confused by all the different impulses in the mind that arise as we settle as the mind gets quieter and quieter, as we simply open to the breath or to a sound or to an emotion or to whatever's going on, whatever's predominant, as we settle, as we become more clear, more intimate, many little impulses and some big powerful impulses will arise to want to, the mind uh, inclined to want to think about, to analyze, to compare, to judge, to interpret. And so, this penetration really is a non-confusion or this continuity of non-distraction. So we're there, we're there, we're there. And even though all of these old habits are being triggered, you know, to, oh, wow, this is, let me, how is this compared to, isn't this like, maybe I'm a special meditator now, things seem to be working well. So all of those kinds of thoughts are like uh, hooks. And the question is, are we going to get a, hooked by that hook? Are we going to take a hold of it? Or are we going to be able to keep looking, opening in this very simple, receptive, non, like we're not trying to get anything. We're not trying to even understand it in a conceptual way. So we even have to let go of the need for meaning, like trying to understand it as some meaning or moment's experience. We're even letting go of that impulse to really get it to get the enlightenment, to get the liberation. So there's, uh, it's like a humility or innocence. The humility means that all of our inclinations are not to be trusted. <laughs> right? It's like letting go of all the inclinations. We can't push them away. They're going to be triggered. But we just let go of thinking that I have to do this now. I have to think about this now. I have to judge this now. I have to compare this to something else now. And we just trust the opening or the intimacy. And it takes us a while just to even know what that means, intimacy. So I'll read a little bit more from this few pages of Bhikkhu Bodhi. So he goes on to say, what brings this field of experience into focus and makes it accessible to insight is the mental faculty called in Pali, sati, usually translated as mindfulness. Mindfulness is presence of mind, attentiveness or awareness. Yet the kind of awareness involved in mindfulness dif differs profoundly from the kind of awareness at work in our usual mode of consciousness. All consciousness involves awareness in the sense of a knowing or experiencing of an object. But with the practice of mindfulness, awareness is applied at a very special pitch. The mind is deliberately kept at the level of bare attention, a non-attached observation of what is happening within us and around us in the present moment. 
In the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in a way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. And this is an important hint about how to practice. That's really what I want to talk mostly about today, is how to use particular techniques to support this intention to be mindful. So he's talking about not getting swept away, riding the changes. And so it's like having a particular scent. You know, we're learning the scent, the flavor of the present moment. And all those impulses I was t- uh, talking about earlier to, to interpret or to think or to compare, to judge what's going on, that if we look, we'll notice that it pulls us away from the present moment. When I'm thinking about what you're thinking about, like, is this a good talk? Do they think this is a good talk or a bad talk? When I'm thinking about that, when I'm lost in that kind of worrying, let's call that worrying, then in that moment of worrying about whether you like this talk or not, in that moment, I'm forgetful that this is how it is. Does that make sense? So that's, that's the distinction. Now, when we're not forgetful, which means, all that means is, not being forgetful or being mindful. Again, all that means is, no matter what's going on, that one of the things that's going on in a moment of mindfulness is the understanding, it's a kind of wisdom, is the understanding that this is how how it is now, or this is what's going on. This is what's predominant. So this is the not forgetting. We're not forgetting this is how it is. Now, when we reflect back in hindsight about the day-to-day that we had, you know, however many hours that was for you, when we think back on our day, think about how many minutes, how many moments, I should say, how many moments there was that clear understanding, that strand of wisdom that understood this is how it is now. So it wasn't that we were just putting on our clothes this morning, but there was a sense, an awareness, a wisdom awareness in that moment of putting on our clothes, there was an awareness, but this is just how it is now. This stretching, this movement, this sensation of the clothes going against the skin. When we think about that in hindsight, we realize how rare those moments are when we were really there, aware that we were there when we were there. Like uh, my wife and I, she had to work today, so we went out before she had to take off. We went out and had a light breakfast. We sat in the sun uh, while we were eating, and it was uh, it's really nice. And I noticed because she had to go use the bathroom, so I didn't have too many distractions. It was before the person next to us gave us the New York Times. <laughs> so I was just sitting there in a comfortable chair outside, a nice fountain. The sun, morning sun was on me, and, and it was just a moment of feeling the pleasantness and then knowing this is how it is, that it's just this experience being known. And that's very different than being lost in reverie about how wonderful it is, because it'd be very easy to be a million miles away thinking about how, oh, I should do this every nice morning, or, you know, whatever you might be thinking. I wish I had enough money to do this every morning. <laughs> or, you know, why are things so expensive? Or whatever. I want a fountain like this. That thought came up later. <laughs> so, we can appreciate how rare these moments are. And that actually helps us understand, oh, that moment of being aware, like we can have one right now. You're listening to the talk. There's some mental... A happening, uh, some way that you're relating to this talk. 
whether it's boredom or uh, inspiration or something in between. But there is something happening right now for all of us. And right now, as all of this is happening, there can be a, the strand, mindfulness can be present, which is this, in a moment at least, and then preferably for several moments, this not forgetting that this is just how it is. This excitement or this boredom or this confusion, well, this is just how it is. Or if you're really kind of more obsessed about the sensations in your body right now, but just to know, well, this is how it is. Or thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow, well, this is how it is. So you see, that's a, it's, a, it's a very potent addition to any moment. It, it really transforms the moment that's not forgetting this is how it is. It gives a kind of dimension, dimensionality to the moment that just doesn't exist when we're lost in thought about our life. So we're thinking about our life situation instead of actually being awake that this is the life situation and it's like this now. So mindfulness isn't about thinking about life. It's really uh, learning to live, you know, learning to be real. It's really, really, <laughs> I mean, really reality. I mean, that's the whole idea, is to kind of not be swept away. <clears throat> because the thing about our interpretations is that it doesn't just end with an interpretation, but then we start to interpret our interpretations. There's an endless proliferation and, and this is the kicker, this endless proliferation is endlessly exhausting and irritating for the mind, agitating for the mind. And it leaves a hollow taste. We feel alienated because we should feel alienated because we're actually alienated from our life. We're disconnected. When you go on retreat, whether even a half-day retreat or just have a regular home sitting practice, daily sitting practice, you'll notice this feeling in a very clear way. Um, instead of like sort of letting it build over the course of a decade and then finding yourself totally disconnected or alienated and exhausted in your life, you can learn this in very small gulps just in a daily or, or especially in a retreat practice where you'll be sitting and in the course of 10 minutes or less, your mind will sweep the attention away and you'll be caught up in some mind stream, thinking stream, and you will literally be a million miles away from wherever you're, you are, thinking about judging, comparing, worrying, planning, being excited, fantasizing. And then you'll wake up. You'll wake up in the middle of that fantasy, let's say knowing that and you'll feel like a million miles away and there will be this very interesting moment this is if you have some momentum to your practice you have this very interesting moment of either this kind of crossroads of either noticing that feeling of being a million miles away and then letting it lead to some judgment about being a million miles away or some rushing, wanting to be a good meditator to fix the fact that you were a million miles away. So basically, we were living a life of reactivity, of proliferation, and then we notice it, and then that there's a strong inclination to react to it. Like, oh, I should be a good meditator. That's a reaction. Or, you know, oh, it's bad what I'm doing or to just feel what it feels like to be a million miles away. In that moment of simply noticing what it's like to be a million miles away, we're not a million miles away anymore. We're right in the middle of our life. We're real. Because what's real right now is the feeling of being a million miles away. That's what's real. That's right in the, at the very center of our life in that moment. And you see, it, it was no distance to come back. The thought that we have a big distance to come back is part of the proliferation. It means we're still hooked. 
believing that somehow we've done something bad, good and bad is still part of the proliferation. Mindfulness has nothing to do with good and bad. It's not about good and bad. It's about this is how it is now. So this helps us understand that this not forgetting, it doesn't require some kind of uh, traditional godlike figure determining good and bad, you know, and, see, and sort of dishing out justice. Bad mind. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> you should know better. I hope nobody noticed. <laughs> Been thinking despicable thoughts or a million miles away doesn't need any of that. It's, it's really a, this having this scent, knowing this flavor of freedom. Really, that's the flavor of mindfulness. It's freedom. It's like not needing to do anything about being a million miles away, having been lost in thought for minutes or days or <laughs> decades. Just in that moment, you're already home. You may not like your home right now, Having been a million miles away and then landing, waking up, means you're going to feel the residual effect of having been disconnected, which is unpleasant. But there's real freedom in that willingness to just feel that. Basically, there's freedom in not needing to do anything about it. Not needing, thing to, not needing to do anything about that unpleasant feeling of having been disconnected. And if we're really attentive, we'll notice there's something very sweet about just opening, just receiving that experience of having been disconnected. There's something deeply real and connecting about feeling that feeling of disconnection. I know it sounds like a paradox, but it's really true. So there's a powerful uh, part of this mindfulness practice which is really about not doing, not thinking, not judging, not associating, not planning, not imagining, not wishing. we we get the simplicity of the mindfulness that it's really uh, m mostly about this not forgetting this is how it is and how it's mostly about not doing not doing the next impulse that arises so even even when the impulse seems to be have the label on it that oh this is mindfulness I need to do mindfulness be suspicious of that I have to do mindfulness because we're already awake. The fact that there's a sense, oh, like, oh, I've been thinking, or oh, you know, that right there is the moment of sort of coming out of the fog, coming out of being lost. See, mindfulness is inherent. It, it you know, the moment of mindfulness has already happened. And then what happens in, in that moment of mindfulness the ego arises as the person who wants to do the mindfulness. So we have to be suspicious of that. Instead, it's more about trusting this is how it is. And trusting that sim simple uh, wisdom stream that knows, oh, but this is just how it is now. It's just this. The attention will naturally come back to the breath once we completely accept that yucky feeling of having been lost. You know, we'll come back to the anchor if it's been trying to do that. We don't even need to feel like I have to come, you know, I have to bring my attention back. Just feel the effect of waking up wherever the mind wakes up. And then you'll just see. Before long, you're aware of the body sitting. And then before long, you're aware of the next breath coming in and the next breath going out. So especially for those of you who've been practicing for a while, begin to see how the practice itself is effortless. It doesn't require somebody in the driver's seat. 
And you ha we have to begin to start teasing out the person who's meditating from the process of meditation. Because it gets to in the way. And just, it's like uh, letting go in evenness when we wake up. Just trusting everything to correct itself. As long as we're willing to feel, to know, this is how it is now. That uh, kind of not forgetting to feel. So it's more than uh, like remembering this is how it is, but it's a re receptivity. It's a undefendedness. This is how it is. Or intimacy. This is how it is. Because it's that letting it in that causes all those impulses to arise that we practice not believing, not believing we have to do something about the impulses. Not even get rid of them. We don't need to get rid of those impulses to do, to react, to think, to judge, to analyze. We just practice not being confused by them. They're just impulses to want to do, to want to think. So we have some techniques that we use to support the uh, basically, what we're supporting is creating more and more momentum for that <clears throat> moment of wisdom to arise in our life, which is, well, this is how it is now. That's that moment of mindfulness. So any techniques, you know, the instructions we get from our teachers and from the Buddha, they're just instructions, they're just techniques <clears throat> that increase the probability the continuity of these moments of wisdom that's, that is this understanding, ah, this is how it is. And that's how we can evaluate what technique is, might be useful for us. In a very pragmatic way, we evaluate the technique by whether it supports that kind of wisdom. Like, when we do this technique, like noting predominant experience, or establishing a very clear anchor for the attention. <clears throat> or sitting every day for an hour in the morning. Or coming to common ground on Sunday evening. You know, these are all rituals or techniques. So the question is, does the technique, does showing up at common ground every Sunday evening, increase the probability of moments where the mind understands this is how it is? Meaning the mind isn't confused by the impulses to proliferate, to think, but just understands this feeling, this emotion, this sensation in the body, this thought, it's just what it is. It's how it is right now. Which is also this recognition that it's possible to just be intimate and then to be intimate again. And even when the mind-body responds, does something, like we actually take a hold of one of those impulses or intentions that arise, then we open to that. We don't judge, oh my God, now I'm thinking. We just open to thinking. Now we're evaluating or analyzing or judging. And judging is like this. So it doesn't matter how reactive we've been. The question is, in this moment, waking up to having been reactive, can there be intimacy? Can we really let that in? The feeling, the taste of this moment having been reactive. Because that's a moment of non-reactivity. Being intimate with reactivity is non-reactivity. It's mindfulness or wisdom. So, you know, for many of us, the basic form or technique we have is to find a time every day if possible where we sit down in a safe place where we won't be distracted as best we can, you know, choosing a place where there won't be phones ringing, <clears throat> we won't have people bothering us, where we feel safe, where there aren't objects that will agitate or stimulate the mind. So maybe staring at a wall or staring out at a window, looking out at a tree or something. Or an altar that has some things that are inspiring or pleasing for this mind. So we find a place, a time to sit, 
we find a way to sit where we feel really stable and there's a sense of comfort, at least at the beginning of the sit. Then that's important. Don't sit cross-legged if you can't be comfortable at least for a period of time. Some degree of comfort. And also, we want our body, our posture to reflect some kind of fearlessness or like a willingness to really be intimate with our life. And generally, what that usually means is that there's an uprightness, like when there's that, and it doesn't need tension, but it's more of an intention in the mind, like a willingness to be right here in my life as best I can to be intimate with the mind and the body as it is, as it actually is in this moment and then in this moment and then in this moment. And then you might need to reestablish that posture, but do it in a subtle way. So if you notice that you have taken on a lot of tension, then as a simple act of compassion, just remind your body, it's okay to be relaxed. Even if it means that you're moving a little bit as you release the tender shoulders, as you soften the belly, as you allow the floor of the pelvis to really sink into the cushion or into the chair, or the jaw or the tongue to release any tension. And then if you notice that you've kind of taken a slumped posture or like retreated into some sort of a uh, a posture that, you know, where you're sort of not encouraging the mind to be awake, then you can just reestablish that intention, this willingness to be right in the middle of your life, to be intimate. So just finding a posture where you can maintain a sense of ease that also reflects this intention to be right in the middle of things. So that's, that's one of the important techniques People don't necessarily think about it that way, but it's really important. And see, that uprightness then is really good because generally after a while, the body, no matter how you're sitting, whether you're in a chair or on the floor, the body begins to hurt because it's just not used to sitting still. And we're carrying around a lot of tension. And that tension begins to express itself as the mind quiets down. And so then we use that fearlessness to be willing to to see, well, Maybe it's possible to be intimate with the pain in the body without thinking about the pain in the body, without reacting to the pain in the body. Maybe there can be a quality of ease and clarity with this pain. Again, this is such a classic technique. So don't think you're wasting your time if this is what your practice is a lot of the time. You're not even with your breath. You're simply reestablishing composure with the pain or the discomfort in the sitting posture. Composure means that you're bringing, uh, reestablishing the intention to be at ease with it, to soften the body with the pain, and to be right in the middle of it, right? Not to need to adjust or move, (coughs) but to be willing as best you can to be still. Stillness with ease though, not with tension. Not like you're muscling your way to the end of the half an hour or something, but a real sense of ease as you just receive the experience of the body. But when the mind isn't distracted or isn't (coughs) drawn to pain, painful sensations, then we can work in a more subtle way, which is we give the mind something neutral to pay attention to. The classic thing, of course, is the breath and the body. So either here, the movement of the belly, rising and falling. So we're actually feeling that physical movement, that expansion and that contraction. And of course, for some people, it's really useful to label that in the mind, like a a quiet, gentle whisper at the back of the mind, rising as you feel the belly expand, falling, as you feel the belly contract. Or you can say uh, expanding, contracting. It doesn't really matter what words you use, and you don't even need to use a word, of course. 
But sometimes it can be helpful. You can just experiment, see if it's useful. So here, we're practicing the same thing. So as we feel the expansion or the rising, then we're trying, we have this intention to experience that rising with mindfulness. So there's a knowing or an understanding, a wisdom that understands this is how it is. So that rising experience is understood as this is how it is. It's just movement. It's just this sensation of movement. It's just this. And then there's just that sensation of contraction, which is just movement again. So it's really mindfulness of movement. It's just this. It's just this. And even within one expansion, one rising, there's many moments of knowing it's just this. Just this being known. Just this sensation of movement being known. Not my idea or my interpretation of the breath coming in. Not any concept or image of the breath coming in. But the actual experience of movement and the actual experience of movement. And the same thing if you're feeling it at the nostrils, except now instead of movement, generally what we're noticing is the touching, right? And then some people, it's in the chest. They feel the movement in the chest. Sometimes, the, uh, especially as the breath becomes more subtle, the actual experience changes. So don't assume that as you're observing the breath and you're understanding this is how it is, that this is going to change. Because as the attention gets more subtle, as the experience becomes more subtle, what actually is being known will change. But that's okay. Because just know what it is. That's all you have to know. And completely trust whatever it is. Don't expect it. Expecting the breath to be the way you remember the breath is not understanding this is how it is. So there's a great devotion to the actual truth of the moment without being under the influence of what you've known from the past, what you expect. So one of the qualities of mindfulness is it has no expectations because it's too busy understanding, well, this is how it is now. It's so clearly, fully knowing this is how it is that it's not predicting how it should be or how it's going to be next, but just this. And so it quite easily allows things to change, to become more subtle, or then to become more gross, if that's what happens. So we use, uh, when, we're not, when the mind isn't drawn to pain, the discomfort of sitting, then we can work with something neutral, like the breath in the body, or hearing, <coughs> or just the general sense of the whole body sitting, just the energetic sense of the body sitting, or the energetic sense of the heart. So just feeling the heart center, however that is, the subtle sensations in the heart. So there are many different kinds of anchors for the attention that we can work with. Generally, whatever neutral anchor you use, as things get more subtle, it comes right to the center of experience, which in Buddhism we call the heart, where we're being mindful of the heart. Still may be an awareness of the breath, but what really is being known, this is how it is, is the state of the heart, or you could say the state of the mind. So that's what I meant about things getting more subtle. There's a kind of um, all roads lead to Rome, in a way. So whatever we begin to pay attention to initially, hearing the breath, sensations in the body, it all comes back to one thing. You can call it Dhamma. You can call it the heart. It doesn't really matter what you call it. And it doesn't even matter. What matters in, in that process of gross to subtle, can we maintain as many of those moments of, well, this is how it is now. And it's actually challenging as it gets more subtle because excitement arises. That's one of those hooks I was talking about. We get excited that things are getting subtle that the energy's building. <coughs> and the mind, you know, thoughts arise like, I must be doing something right. And then we want to evaluate what we're doing. We want to think about what we're doing. But that thought is just, oh, thinking is like this. Breathing in is like this. 
energy rising is like this. Joy or rapture is like this. Light, brightness is like this. So we're not confused by the subtlety and by the pleasantness of the mind becoming subtle. We don't get confused. Just like we practice not getting fused when we're in gross states, like a lot of discomfort, a lot of restlessness, a lot of sleepiness. Oh, sleepiness is like this. With infinite patience. So infinitely patient with the gross and pleasant states and infinitely wise with the pleasant states, just understanding what's pleasant and it's like this. But who knows? Not expecting it to last, not needing it to last, just knowing that right now it's like this. It's really subtle, it's really beautiful, and it's like this. And it's like this. And now there's attachment, and it's like this. And now the body's painful, and it's like this. And we're willing to just one moment of mindfulness followed by another one. And then we get lost, and then that moment we wake up knowing that we've been lost, complete acceptance and forgiveness, patience, gentleness. Oh, being lost is like this. Judgment is like this. Beginning again is like this. That intention to begin again, that sort of courageousness, like, oh, I can just begin again. I don't need to fight. I don't need to judge. It's just like this. You know, and then pretty soon, we're right back in the body. Ah, sitting is like this. Breathing is like this. Breathing out is like this. Calmness is like this. And on and on. Over and over again. So maybe we'll spend one more week talking about mindfulness, possibly two. Um, so we're taking this time to really reflect on what it is that we do and connect our sort of the deep, deepest understanding of what mindfulness is with the nuts and bolts of our daily sitting practice. So we're really understanding like what we actually do when we sit, understand it in light of the deeper intention in the practice. But there's about 10 minutes left if people have any questions or comments from your own practice. How you've come to understand mindfulness or how you've learned to see it, Paul? Oh, I have a comment and a question. First of all, I have a six-month-old son. He's light years ahead of me in terms of spiritual development. It's like he's, you're describing his everyday, every-minute existence. And he has no language yet, so he has no concepts. And, you know, he's just always in the moment. Whatever's dominant, he's right there. So, I mean, just watching him and being with him, it's like, uh, you know, I just notice how it's almost like we're trying to become that, in that state again of a receptive child and that wonder and that sort of uh, raw experience of being a six-month-old or a year-old. And, and also with my daughter, Ava, she's three. Already I can tell she's starting to think, and she's losing that because she's already starting to think and talk, and I can just see she's, like, zoning out sometimes. I'm like, Ava, what are you thinking about? And already she has sort of a little story. Mm -hmm. So it's just amazing how, like, it seems like we're kind of returning <laughs> to be the baby. <laughs> That's just my comment. And the other, the, the question I had uh, was, I noticed that um, my mind gets a little restless in between the uh, exhale and then the next inhale. There's that space of nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, there's no anchor, it's gone, because you're just waiting. Mm -hmm. So um, I've been experimenting with, like, just l listening. Mm -hmm. Or just, like, going and just feeling the body. You know, just, just expanding, like, the um, dimension. Is there a, um, is, is one better than the other, sound versus staying in the body? Just for that few seconds before the next breath comes. Yeah, it's a good question. And that's a classic place for distraction to arise. I mean, you ha the practice has to be relatively subtle for that to be a problem. But once the practice is subtle, in those moments when the practice is subtle like that, the mind, because what happens as the mind settles down is the energy really builds. So there's all this potential energy or brightness, sometimes you call it, in the mind. And so, and what kind of helps to contain that brightness, what helps to unify that brightness, is the attentiveness to the exhalation. 
And then all of a sudden, those sensations are gone. There's all this energy, and it's just it's looking for something to do. And so it's good to give it something to do in that moment. And yeah, basically, you can just find what works. But some of the classic things is just to note a moment of noting sitting. So just note the whole, uh, instead of looking at a particular point in the body, just feel the whole body sitting, that experience of the body sitting. And you can even mentally note that sitting, and then inhaling or you know whatever you're feeling, rising, touching. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing to look at, too, is um, any fear or any emotional tone that might arise in that empty space. You might want to, in moments, not every time, but in moments, like really look for it and see if you can just make peace with it, like to see that and be intimate with that, not to be afraid of that open space. You can also simply hold your attention. So are you feeling the breath in the belly? Yes, so just, it's like feel the belly without movement. So just hold the attention there. And you can even, if you're noting, you could just note, you know, belly, and then feel the movement again as the breath continues. So that's another thing. Because sometimes the breath gets so subtle that you don't even feel anything for periods of time. And then you can practice just holding your attention in what feels like this space or this space patiently. And you can just notice knowing. So the object, in a sense, is the knowing. You're, the mind that you're sort of knowing, knowing is like this. So what's predominant is actually the knowing, not what's being known. There isn't any clear object, but there's a clear sense that knowing, that there's a knowing there, there's just no object that's clear. So you can notice, you can note that or notice the knowing as the object itself. So you can see this is sort of subtle, but just some different things to play with and just see what works. You know, be pragmatic about what you do. And you might need to just stick to something instead of trying a lot of things. You know, shop around a little and then just go with something for a period of time, a couple of weeks, and see if it, if it works. Mm-hmm. Cindy and then Stacy. Yeah. Well, generally for the subtle uh, states like that, we wanna uh, we wanna be on the lookout for any emotional tone associated with them, and be very interested in that. Um, so one of the things I see regularly is just uh, I know the emotional tone that there's comfort. Mhm. So yeah. So you might just note that without. Uh, don't worry about the light. If it gets strong, I mean, you'll you'll naturally notice if it gets stronger or not. But uh, but be very interested in the feeling of ease or comfort, and and it, whether that's strengthening, deepening, or or fading. So generally speaking, the the tone, the feeling tone, is really important here because if we're not, in a sense, hypersensitive to it, it's diluting. We get diluted by this, the feeling tone, especially with pleasant states, subtle pleasant states. The mind gets, we don't think we're attached, but we're actually attached. And so then what we're doing is we're sort of, we're basically um, scheming and, and manipulating, just as if we were sort of a used car salesman, scheming and manipulating. We're just doing it in a very subtle way with our mind states and we don't realize it. And we can play there a long time. So the, the key is to use those subtle, pleasant mind states, to use them to learn about attachment in more and more subtle ways, like how attachment arises in the mind in such amazingly subtle ways, just a slight like preferring this to that. And we want, we, what we really want is the peacefulness of equanimity, 
not even needing beautiful mind states. What a relief that is. Because it can be, you know, I know you know, and, and people probably know to some degree how much we can get attached to these pleasant mind states, these subtle pleasant mind states, the bliss. Because as ordinary human beings, it, uh, it really uh, makes ordinary worldly pleasant experiences seem so, sort of mundane when we realize how much ease and lightness and peace there is that we can experience in the mind. And so they're, they're quite intoxicating. So we want to be on the lookout. And that's not like that's not like a superficial practice. That takes us all the way because what happens is then things get more subtle and more beautiful and then we look for the attachment there until anything can happen and no aversion and attachment arises. So this is the path kind of for more profoundly subtle and unpleasant experiences to arise and to practice being really mindful and not getting caught. Thanks, Cindy. Stacy? Uh, periodically, I struggle with pain. I just blows everything. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that in the back? Periodically, she struggles with panic. And just been practicing for a lot, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And just. <laughs> I have no way to. Humiliating, isn't it, to be out of control? <laughs> yeah, so don't think because you've been practicing for years that things don't knock you down, because that doesn't seem to be the case. In a way, I, think, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the more we practice, and I know it's time, so I'm just gonna, I'll make this really short, but in a way, one of the things that seems to happen, the it's not so much the more we practice, but the deeper our commitment to opening, no matter what happens in our life. It seems like nature, in its infinite wisdom and compassion, delivers some really potent things our way that uh, are just challenges. And sometimes the, the challenge is how not to be knocked down by what life is delivering. And sometimes... Uh, even deeper ex- uh, experience is to be okay about being knocked down, to be okay about being humiliated, to be okay about being a limited human being, you know, who has panic attacks. And like, what is what would be a really beautiful way to relate to the experience of being a human being who has panic attacks? Well, you could practice relating with compassion and forgiveness and patience. You know, it's like, it's okay to have panic attacks. I know a lot of people who've been practicing for more than 20 years who have panic attacks. <laughs> so, you're not alone. <laughs> I mean, serious practitioners, people who've done a lot of practice. So, there's like, um, there's a lot of powerful stuff, <coughs> unfinished business. <clears throat> and sometimes it comes up in really sort of gradual ways. And sometimes it comes up in real bursts that are just knock us down. And uh, we learn different things from depending on what's arising. So you, your job is to learn what you can learn from what's arising for you. And at whatever moment you can, have a moment of mindfulness. If it's in the process of the panic building, have a few moments of mindfulness. If it's only after the panic attack has you know, exploded, then have it then. But wherever you can have it, as soon as you can have those moments of mindfulness, have a moment of mindfulness. And then once you have a moment of mindfulness, see if you can have a, it can be the, followed by another moment of mindfulness. Without caring about whether the panic attack continues or, or falls away. See, we generally want to use mindfulness to control our experience. But mindfulness is about understanding our experience, not about controlling it. It does change our experience, but not because we want to control it. It changes it because of the understanding that arises from having moments of mindfulness. 
But if we use it, if the ego uses mindfulness to control experience, it it won't work. It won't have its deepest value, for sure. So let's just let go of the words for just a few seconds. Take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.